Hello and welcome to Afternoonified, the podcast where we hope you're not afraid of heights, or deadly columns of ice, or even slowly freezing to death on the side of a mountain. I'm Emily. And I'm getting a little dizzy. I might need to sit this one out. Sarah, this episode was literally your idea. Oh shit, I can't back out of this one, huh? No. Well, good news, because I've got 12 pages of notes, and it's 8.30, and I didn't sleep last night because I was up until 12.30 right Jesus Christ. going to be a fun episode, everybody. Buckle I need up. to go decorate for Halloween. You're going to just take up the whole afternoon with the or night with the thing that we've planned on doing. God forbid, right? Hi, guys. Oh, hello. I'm so glad you could make it. I forget sometimes people listen to this. Yeah, it's weird. I, I mean, I would say a dozen of people. There are literally dozens of listeners. <laughs> Give or take a dozen. Uh, today, oh, where was I interrupting? No, Did you no, have no, a no. funny joke? I did not. Great. I can just feel the croak in my voice. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can just let me talk. The episode will be over in 20 minutes. It'll be fine. 12 pages of notes. <laughs> Just wait till the next episode. I got books. Oh, shit. Books. I could have read a book for this one. I didn't. I have one job during this episode and we haven't reached it yet. So um, we're talking about Everest. We are. Um, uh, Mount Everest, if you guys have never heard of it, it's the tallest mountain on the planet. Um, or at least it's the tallest mountain if you are measuring from sea level. Apparently, It's the tallest it, mountain if you aren't. Well, you can measure from like the ocean floor. I guess. In which case there are like mountains that have like a higher height, even though they don't like extend out. Wouldn't it theoretically be easier to climb one of those mountains than it would be to climb Everest? I mean, theoretically, because they're usually just like itty bitty islands poking up. Yeah, you could just swim up the side of, well, I mean, I guess water pressure and all of that, but. I was just thinking you could just take a boat to the island and walk up a hill. I, I guess, but you could also take a helicopter to the side of Everest. Uh, actually, you can't. That's a thing. Oh, well, do tell. <laughs> I'll get to it. We should, uh, like, do some basic, you know, all the science-y stuff that we get out of the way ahead of time. Not really What's science. It? It's a lot of numbers, <laughs> which is science to me. I don't know. Math? I'm a liberal arts major. Statistics? <laughs> Statistics, yes. Which I got a C in, so. I never took it. <laughs> So Mount Everest is located in the Himalayan mountain range. It sits on the border of Nepal and China. And it's technically it's the Tibet part of China. If oh, that... right. The part that's not China. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it's China, but it's Tibet. It, we're not going to get into that. Is is Tibet like China's Puerto Rico? Oh, uh, I think it's more complicated than that. I think it's like an occupied. I don't Ah. I don't know. So Tibet is China's India to... The China's United, whatever, keep going. Sorta, yeah. I don't know. The Chinese are in control of Tibet right now. Yeah. That's what I know. Uh, so the current official elevation is 8,848 meters, or 29,029 feet. This is America, Sarah. You lift the... So I actually, like, I give a lot of elevations in this episode. I tried to, where I could, give both meters and feet. And then, like, at page seven, I get really lazy and I just start giving feet... Because there's only so many, like, clever ways to say 
26,000 feet or however many meters. I don't know. I don't have, I haven't looked it up. (laughs) Really, the confidence you are displaying in this episode is mind boggling. (laughs) It's just staggering. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to sound smart here eventually. Maybe not. Who knows? Uh, This was established in a 1955 Indian survey and confirmed by a Chinese survey in 1975. Uh, In 2005, China actually re-measured the rock height of the mountain um, because there's a difference between, like, what's actually rock and what's snow on top of the rock. Ah. Um, So they brought it down to 29,017 feet. Uh, And there was kind of an argument between China and Nepal as to how they should measure the mountain and what's the official height. So that took five years. (laughs) <laughs> for them to argue over 12 feet. Uh, they eventually came to an agreement that the overall height, snow and all, the 29,029 number, was going to be recognized as the official elevation, but Nepal recognizes that China's measurement of the mount. It recognizes that China measured the rock height right. Okay. So five so, years well spent. So you're like, <laughs> you were right about this. However, it's the actual height of it. Yeah. It's like including the height of someone's hair when you're right measuring. Yeah. Um, geologists argue that the mountain's elevation is actually even higher. It's getting taller because India is being gradually pushed between China and Nepal because of, you know, shifting tectonic plate things. Well, and, uh, China started hanging out with India more and, you know, you can't stay friends forever. (laughs) Never. No. Uh, so the figure used by the U.S. National Geographic Society based off, like, GPS is 8,850 meters or 29,035 feet. So this was a lot of words to say it's about like that. <laughs> Got really into the height thing here. Anyway. I mean, it is its claim to fame. Is being tall. Yeah. So you kind of got to talk about how tall it is. Yes, you do. <laughs> uh, you also got to talk about people climbing it because that's kind of the whole thing. Who knew? Uh, so the first successful, successful ascent of Everest was made by Tenzing Norgay, a Nepali Sherpa climber, climber and a New Zealander, Edmund Hillary, who reached the summit at 11.30 a.m. local time on May 29, 1953. Ooh. Uh, their team was part of the ninth British expedition to Everest, and the news of their success reached London just in time to be released the morning of Queen Elizabeth II's coronation on June 2nd. Wow, way to steal her fucking thunder. <laughs> I'm sure they, like, I'm sure that was actually, like, perfect for them, because not only, like, are they having this whole thing where, like, she's being coronated as queen, but they get to then brag to everybody about how they got to Everest first. I mean, this was like pre-space race and kind of the last cool thing England ever did. Hey, 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 they did Richard Madden that and Elton John. I say Richard Madden's, Madden's Scottish, isn't he? Technically? Yeah. What's your point? I almost said Taron Egerton, <laughs> but he's Welsh, so. And actually, Edmund Hillary is from New Zealand, so. Well... <laughs> But they can't have credit for anything. Not in 1953, they can't. All right. Uh, So Tenzing and Hillary were hailed as heroes, an honor that was well-deserved. Here's the thing. We don't actually know for sure if they were the first to make it to the top. Well, yeah, some fucking Sherpa could have done it and kept his mouth shut. Uh, More than that. I mean, I don't think the Sherpas were really into climbing the mountain until people started, like, paying them to climb the mountain. (laughs) To be fair, that would also be my attitude. Like... I mean, I I just it's feel like just, climbing mountains is a real white person thing. It's it's so far that up like there. we then exported. I don't know. Yeah, it's a <laughs> long way. Uh, I mean, Germans are the most into it, and they are the whitest people we have. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, so they were definitely the first climbers to summit Everest and make it all the way back down. Uh, that is an important qualification. 
<laughs> uh, so no one's disputing that or just diminishing their accomplishments. Everyone's very into Hillary. He's super cool. Uh, the mystery actually concerns our friend George Mallory and uh, Andrew Sandy Irvine, two climbers with the British expedition of 1924. This sounds like it's going to end well for everybody. <laughs> no, it never does. Uh, so I, brief disclaimer, I could do a full episode about this. Don't have time. I could do four episodes about everything I talk about in this episode. I'm going to try and do the cliff notes. I apologize in advance for the brevity. So of the two, George Mallory, who was 37 at the time, he was a more experienced climber. He had been to Everest twice before. He'd been there in 1921 and 22. um, And he had spent the intervening years actually touring England to raise funds to go back, essentially. Touring with what? I think they just like went around and like gave talks and talked about why they wanted to go to Everest and why it was important and showed people rocks. I don't know. What was his name again? George Mallory. Damn it. I was hoping you said his name was Edmund Mallory. Then it would be an Ed dog. <laughs> Not the point. Bad no. joke. <laughs> uh, so it was during this tour um, that he gave this famous quote. He was asked why he even wanted to climb Everest. And he gave the famous answer, because it is there. Ah, that is a white people thing. It's a very white person thing. Yeah. Uh, so Andrew Irvine, he's better known as Sandy. He was only 21. Um, he was a less experienced climber, but he's also an engineering student. Um, and so, in like, at least for 1924, is very technologically, he had a lot of, like, good technical and mechanical expertise. He had smart? He was super smart. Like, he helped make the oxygen equipment lighter, like, things like that, that they were the really important stuff. to climb that big old mountain. So the team, which is 12 climbers in all, they made three summit attempts up the North Face, which is the Chinese, at the time, Tibet side of the mountain. Oh, um, so they didn't go to, like, the outlet? The what? North Face outlet. It was a jacket joke. That took me a little bit. I know. Thank you for that. Uh, So, yes, they climbed up a big puffy jacket. No. Uh, (laughs) So the north side at this time was the only route that was actually accessible because the kingdom of Nepal was off limits to foreigners. So no white people allowed. Not a bad move. No. (laughs) Uh, On June 8th, 1924, Mallory and Irvine set out for the third and final summit attempt of this expedition. Uh, they were last seen by a fellow climber, Noel Odell, who claimed he had sighted them scrambling up the second step, which is just the second to last ridge right before the summit. Um, it's also the most famous and most difficult. It's about 250 meters below the actual top. Well, that's cool. Uh, his account has been disputed. Um, Odell himself admitted he wasn't entirely clear about where he had seen the climbers, Assuming because it was pretty far away, but Mm -hmm. also it's like you're not going to mistake them for someone else. You see someone moving and climbing up a mountain. They're the only two people on the mountain. So (laughs) uh, it is theorized that he might have actually seen them climbing up the far easier first step or even that they had given up their ascent and were already climbing back down the mountain. Uh, Regardless, this is the last anyone ever saw of either Mallory or Irvine and their fate remained a mystery for decades. Do tell. In 1933... A subsequent British expedition discovered Irvine's ice axe just below the first step. Uh, There's competing interpretations as to whether the axe was, like, left there intentionally or if it had, like, landed during a fall. Um, The climbers that found it speculated it was the latter, since they didn't believe Mallory or Irvine would leave crucial equipment behind. Um, Others have said, like, the way it was placed indicates that, like, it had been set down. Um, And that just the general topography of the area made it unlikely that's where they would have fallen. Mm-hmm. Who knows? I mean, we're going off some guy's notes from 1933. About an axe. Yeah. And I don't think, like, there's pictures of it. I, yeah, and I was never able to be clear about, like, what made it 
or what was the evidence for either way, just that people had different interpretations. Okay. So, who knows? Um, there was a Chinese summit expedition in 1975, um, and during that, a claimer named Wang Hongbao spotted, um, reported that he had seen the body of what he called English dead sitting upright in the shelter of a rock at 26,980 feet, like 8,200 meters. Uh, he described the body as gape-mouthed, uh, which rude. will be important later. Put a pin in that. Uh, he reported his sighting to a Japanese climber in 1979, uh, only to be killed by an avalanche the next day. Uh, so the exact location of the body has never been confirmed, and it has never been found. And it really what? feels like the mountain's trying to cover something up. But You mean all of the murders? <laughs> so many murders. Uh, in 1991, some very old oxygen cylinders were sighted not far from the location of Irvine's axe by a climber named Eric Simonson. And then he returned in 1999 as part of Mallory and Irvine's research expedition, uh, funded by German Everest researcher Jochen Hemleb. At the time of the expedition, it was generally assumed that Mallory and Irvine couldn't have possibly reached the summit, like they, they were too low on the ridge, um, and that the second step would have been impossible for them to climb at that time with like what they had available and what clothes they had. Mm-hmm. Um, this time, though, they were able to recover one of those oxygen cylinders, and it was confirmed it had belonged to Mallory and Irvine. Um, and based on the location they were found, uh, the team concluded that the two British climbers had been making good time and that their oxygen was working just fine. Okay. Uh, this wasn't their coolest discovery. Uh, as they were searching, cited, uh, searching for the body cited by Wang Hong Bao, um, presumed at that time to be Sandy Irvine, they stumbled upon the body of George Mallory himself, lying With face down. With his whole ass out with his butt out as you have so delicately told us uh in important distinction to have his butt out he needed to be face down (laughs) but he was on a gravel slope of the north face um at 26,768 feet which is very high in the air i'm sorry it's it's so sad that he died like that sucks However, his butt is out, and we'll post a picture out. of his butt to Instagram. That's right, everybody. If there's more corpses in this episode, <laughs> all corpses, all the way down, all the way up, even. Uh, so it was obvious very quickly um, that Mallory had died in a fall. His right foot was nearly broken off. Very cool. Uh, and there was a golf ball-sized puncture wound in his forehead. Uh, there was also signs of severe rope jerk at his waist, indicating that he had probably been roped to Irvine when he fell. Okay. Okay. Um, and also, Mallory was not wearing snow goggles. Um, there was a pair stored in his vest, which kind of raised the possibility that maybe he had been descending at night. And that timing is important because if they were still on the mountain that late when they fell, it's presumed that they would have had enough time to reach the summit and come back and essentially yeah. biff it on the way down. Um, however... Contemporary photos show that Mallory might have actually had two sets of goggles, in which case it's just as likely that the pair he was wearing was just lost because he's been on a mountain for 70 years. I mean, I'm looking at the pictures and it looks like his head isn't even there anymore. So, yeah, he's he's in rough shape, except for his butt. No, his butt is in bad (laughs) shape, too, my dude. There's like a big chunk missing. Yeah, there's there's a few chunks uh, out of Mallory. Uh, So, really, it was what wasn't found with Mallory's body that's fueled the most speculation. Um, First off, um, there was a photo of his wife, Ruth. Um, He carried throughout the whole expedition tucked inside his vest. He'd stated that if he reached the summit, he intended to leave the picture there. 
Um, and it's just so fucking romantic that it makes me want to believe he made it to the top. And that's why the picture isn't there. Um, but of course, it's a picture. It's totally possible it was lost just like in the intervening decades. Um, yeah. But if a pair of snow goggles managed to stay inside his vest, I don't see why the photo couldn't either. So like there's not scavengers at 26,000 feet picking through the body. And he's kind of buried in gravel and rock and snow. So I mean, maybe not animal scavengers, but weird people. Well, not, I mean, not really that height. 26,000 feet, we'll get to it a little later, but 26,000 feet, humans literally can't survive. According to this article, Tom Hardy has been tapped to play George Mallory in a movie. I would watch the hell out of that. When is that coming out? I I don't know. Um, not soon enough. I will report back. Let me know. So the other item of interest that wasn't found, um, and what the researchers were hoping that they would find, was the Kodak camera Mallory and Irvine were known to have carried with them. Uh, it's the only piece of evidence that can definitively answer the question of whether they made it to the summit or not. Uh, presumably, if they'd had, they would have snapped a picture or two. I mean, theoretically, but... I mean, go all the way up there. You gotta, you know, Pixar didn't happen. <laughs> and Kodak has even said that if the film is found intact, they would probably still be able to develop it. Which is actually very cool. I mean, it seems unlikely, but i they probably know more than I do. I, I would hope. I mean, if they haven't folded as a company, but who knows. <laughs> uh, so for now, and for at least the foreseeable future, it's still a mystery. Depends a lot on if and when we ever manage to find Irvine's body. Uh, and even then, only if he actually has the camera on him. Uh, it seems likely that Wang Hong Bao's English dead sighting, assuming that it's true, mm-hmm. is of Irvine. There were no other English climbers missing on that part of the mountain. And like the route, the north face of Everest was actually close to English climbers after 1950, after China took control of Tibet. So uh, for further reading, if you're really interested in this, and I think it's fascinating, uh, there's an outside magazine article called Ghost of Everest from 1999, all about the expedition. It's very cool. Go read it. It's going to be a lot of that this episode because people (laughs) are smarter than me. I mean, they're, they're the people that make this show possible. Uh, so a few other notable firsts while we're at it. Why not? <laughs> uh, so the first woman to seven, summit Everest, uh, Junko Tabe from Japan in 1975. Uh, the first ascent without supplemental oxygen uh, was Reinhold Messner from Italy and Peter Habler of Austria in 1978. The first female ascent without op- oxygen was L- Lydia Bradley of New Zealand. Uh, she did this in 1988. She also did it in October which sounds miserable. Um, there's a fall climbing season after the monsoons, but it's less popular. Most people do it in May. I'm sorry. I just love how these pe- how these people are like, uh, people have made it up before, but I'm going to make it up there without the thing that will keep me from dying. Yeah, that's pretty much it. People are people are nuts on Everest. Anyway, uh, the first winter ascent, which sounds terrible. Awful. Don't do that. No. Kristoff uh, Wielik and Lezek Sinci? Hmm. He is from Poland. They're from Poland. I'm sorry. I don't know how to pronounce that name. Uh, February 1980. Uh, the first Nepalese woman, uh, Laka Sherpa, in 2000. Uh, and the first two people to marry at the top of Everest, um, Pem Dorji and Moni Mulapate of Nepal in May 2005. That's pretty Sure. Cool. Do that, I guess. That's... And then, well, we'll talk about dying. I know so many people who wouldn't go to a fucking destination wedding, let alone one that was at the top of Everest. I feel like their guests were kind of just whoever had summited at the same time. <laughs> what year was this? 2005? Yeah. I'm sure there were people around. Thank you for attending, uh, random strangers. We will have uh, fully fucking frozen hors d'oeuvres on the <laughs> North Face in two days. 
if everyone could start making their way there now. <laughs> uh, so while climbing Mount Everest is not technically difficult, um, as far as like rock climbing goes. Oh, okay. I mean, it sounds terrible to me, but according to actual climbers, not really. Uh, mountaineers face plenty of dangers, including altitude sickness, hypoxia, blizzards, wind speeds of up to 200 miles per hour, and when the w- when the weather shifts, and avalanches. It's almost like God doesn't want us on top of that mountain. You would think so. Just don't go. Uh, so though, although lower mountains have steeper climbs, um, Everest is so tall that the jet stream can hit it. Uh, which is why you will see most summit attempts happen during the month of May. There's this very narrow window where the jet stream shifts north, uh, and then it's just before the summer monsoon season starts. So you've got like a month. Uh, This year, if I'm not mistaken, there were so many people trying to climb Everest in May that there was like a queue going up the mountain. We'll talk about it. It was the whole thing. Um, so by 1987, only 200 people had managed to summit Everest. Uh, they usually went as a larger national expedition, expedition, like the British did an expedition, the Japanese did an expedition, mm-hmm. like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, commercial expeditions uh, started to become popular in the 1990s. And today, more than 600 people reach the summit every year, uh, about half of those who attempt it. Uh, so today, the primary barriers are money and fitness. And time, I have to assume. Well, yeah, I mean, you've got to be there for a couple of weeks, but uh, you don't really even necessarily have to be an experienced climber as long as you can afford to pay a commercial outfitter or a guide. And like those requirements, like for who they take, is I'm assuming varies by company. Um, Do you know how long it takes to climb? We'll talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have I have all those stats. We're gonna go through the whole thing. <laughs> You by the time this podcast ends, you will know exactly how to get up Everest, or not really, because I'm not good at describing things with my word mouth. Also, I don't want to. That too. <laughs> I'm sitting in my apartment right now. It is 58 degrees out. I am cold. <laughs> uh, so the price of an expedition will run you anywhere from thirty thousand to one hundred and ten thousand, um, including an eleven thousand permit from the Nepalese government. So if you are cl- um, if you're climbing from the Nepal side or the South Pole, which most do that's kind of the easiest route Mm -hmm. and like i said china was closed off for a while nepal was closed off for a while but now kind of everyone goes up nepal okay uh so here's another source shout out outside magazine again uh they did an article called climbing everest in 2019 it has pictures it is so much more descriptive than i can ever be without straight up plagiarizing them so go read that it's pretty cool but just a quick overview so mountaineers flying to the capital of Kathmandu. Uh, and from there, they will take a short flight to the small town of Thukla. Uh, from there, it is a 7 to 10 day hike to Everest Base Camp, which sits at an elevation of 17,600 feet. Uh, most will get there early, and they spend a few days or a few weeks acclimating to the altitude while they wait for the route to actually open up in May. That sounds exhausting. Who has that much PTO? People who can also afford to pay $100,000 to go climb a mountain. Okay, fine. You can also. My uh, dad's girlfriend's daughter did this. You can just hike to base camp, which I would never do it because I would have to sleep outside. But, like, I like the idea of that. Like, you don't have to climb Everest, but you can, like, go go chill out at base camp. That sounds fun. You can go see the Matterhorn, but you don't have to ride it. Or see it because it's also a mountain. Whatever. I could have used a better description. Uh, so each spring, about eight to ten Sherpas will travel ahead from base camp to what is known as the Kumba Icefall. And this sits between base camp and camp one. 
and they secure all the rope lines and the ladders and generally just kind of figure out what the route everyone is going to take that year. They park ranger it. Yeah. Brief detour. The Sherpas, uh, they are a whole podcast in their own right. Again, I'm sorry. I can't do the whole thing. Um, If you're looking for a deeper dive, Stuff You Should Know did a really good one a couple years back. Uh, We'll just do a brief explainer here. The term Sherpa is thrown around a lot. It's used um, to refer to just about anyone hired as a guide or climbing support. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the Sherpa as a people is an ethnic group that's native to the Himalayas. Uh, They are renowned in the climbing community for their hardiness, expertise, and experience at incredibly high altitudes. Because, you know, they live there. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I have to assume I... uh... Uh, evolution kind of took the wheel. Yeah, there's kind of, there's like some speculation that like they're actually like have genetically adapted to the height, like something with like the amount of hemoglobin their body produces or something like that. I like, mean, that wouldn't be surprising. They physically are just better adapted. Yeah. Which, I mean, it makes sense. Well, yeah. humans as a species like have adapted in different ways to like living close to the equator. Mm-hmm. That's all skin color is. <laughs> Uh, so the Sherpas were absolutely invaluable to early explorers and still are today. They do a lot of the technical and foundational work so that people are actually able to climb the mountain in the first place. Mm-hmm. So this is just something I want you to keep in mind as we talk about the route that goes up the mountain. Like all the fixed rope lines and ladders you're going to hear about the climbers using, all of that was placed for them by the Sherpas, who, native or otherwise, who have already climbed the mountain without the benefit of these things and put them there. <laughs> So if you really want someone that's impressive, those guys. (laughs) Anyway, the icefall. It is essentially a big field of ice. Uh, It's formed by the Kumba Glacier, and it moves at such a speed that large crevasses will suddenly open. And large columns of ice, uh, they're known as Ciroc's, they'll just collapse without warning. (laughs) It sounds like a fun place. It horrifies me. Uh, It's easily one of the most dangerous and most technically complicated parts of the climb, and many climbers and Sherpas have been killed there. Oh, cool. Uh, So to reduce some of the risk, um, usually if you're going to climb it, you got to do it well, or you got to start your climb well before dawn. Mm -hmm. And that's when the temperatures are just cold enough to freeze the ice in place. (laughs) Oh, good. Once the sun comes up and it starts to melt, everything shifts. I don't like to think about it. I don't like to think about most of this, which is why I'm so deeply fascinated by it. It's just like, it's one of those things like, I will never, ever, ever do this. Because I like living and not freezing. I mean, I guess, yeah, where you're from, there isn't a whole lot of high ev- uh, elevations. So no, it's a foreign no. concept. Literally grew up on the prairie. Just corn and white people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to make this even worse, climbers will usually have to make this trip across the icefall four or five or six times uh, because you hop up and down the mountain to acclimate to the altitude. So like from base camp, you'll climb to camp one, you'll like do a jaunt to camp two, and then you'll come back down and kind of recover. And then you'll do a, like another climb, like just to get your body used to the lack of oxygen you got to climb up and down the mountain a bunch of times. Again, if God wanted us to climb that <laughs> mountain, he would have put enough oxygen up there. Uh, Camp 1 sits at 19,900 feet, about 6,000 meters. Uh, from there, climbers make their way up the Western Coombe, which is like a flat glacial valley known as the Valley of Silence. <laughs> oh, God uh, damn it. <laughs> uh, it's not as grim as it sounds, thankfully. Uh, just that because of the topography, there's almost never any wind on this part of the mountain. Um, in that altitude, I mean, assuming you're just so close to the sun. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, it can actually get unbearably hot. What a cool, interesting place this mountain is. <laughs> camp 2, or otherwise known as Advanced Base Camp, uh, that sits at the base of the Lhotse Face um, at 23,000 feet or 6,500 meters. Advanced Base Camp was my favorite episode of Community. <laughs> uh, Lhotse itself is the fourth highest mountain in the world. Oh, okay. And it's like a stepping stone, essentially, <laughs> for Everest. From Camp 2... Climbers must use fixed ropes to ascend a sheer wall of ice uh, that ranges anywhere from 45 to 55 degrees in slope. There will be traffic. This is a thing, and it sounds way fun. Uh, so outside had this great quote from Mark pa- um, Fetzer, I think his name is. Mm-hmm. So you'll see a picture of this, and it'll literally look like there's like just a conga line of people going straight up the side of a mountain. And like there's people coming up, and there's people coming down. I, I, what should I Google to look at this? Um, I'll put a picture on the Instagram. I'm not sure what, what you'd have to Google at the moment, um, but I'll find something. Okay. Mark, though, he says, when you meet someone coming down or are passing someone going up, there's a little dance you have to do. This is you my nightmare. from the rope, dangerous at that stupid angle. Uh, you grab hold of the other guy's clothes. You edge around him as he hangs onto the rope with both hands, and then you clip back onto the rope again. Uh, and you do this dance four or five times, you can't help but think it's a traffic jam at 24,000 feet. I can't even get off the bus. Like, if someone is standing in front of me, I get too anxious. Like, this sounds awful. It is horrifying. (laughs) Oh, I found a picture. This is terrible, and I hate it. Yeah, I will link you to a video later, and actually, I should go find that now real quick. Um, I watched it last night, and I wanted to cry. (laughs) Uh, We'll get back to that. Um, Camp 3 will usually fall anywhere between 23,000 and 2,500 feet. Each team kind of has to pick their own spot because not a lot of flat camping space on this part of the mountain. Weird. Uh, From Camp 3, you go up to the South Col of Everest. Um, More climbing up the Lhotse face. Um, Two additional obstacles. There's a section of limestone rock called the Yellow Band, and at 24,000 feet, a rocky outcropping known as the Geneva Spur. So kind of like a bulge in the mountain that you kind of... Got to climb up and over. Mm-hmm. Then, when you reach Camp 4, at 26,000 feet, you're officially in the death zone. I really wish they wouldn't call it that. It seems uh, counterintuitive. Maybe I like mean, the winning zone. Well, I mean, they're being very literal. I mean, what we mean by the death zone is literally not enough oxygen at this altitude to sustain human life. Uh, it's about 30% of what you would find at sea level. Ew. Yeah, it's not... I went to Denver a couple years ago, and my sister-in-law and I drove up just, like, some random mountain. Um, It was maybe 12,000 feet, and we, like, hiked down a little ways to a lake. And, like, on the hike back up, I thought it was going to die. (laughs) I can't handle Denver altitude. I don't know what I would do at 26,000 feet. Yeah, I haven't been to Denver in so long, but I have to spend a bunch of time there um, in a couple weeks, and I'm just not looking forward to it. And by a bunch of time, I mean, like, five hours, but that... (laughs) It's too much. I would, when I was a kid and we'd go out to Colorado, I would get altitude sickness every time. Fun. I just, I'm I'm not built for this place. Anyway, uh, so at this point, climbers are wearing a full body down suit. Um, most are using supplemental oxygen because you literally can't survive without it for like more than two to three days. And even then, like, it's dicey. Good um, Lord. From the minute you enter the death zone, your body is dying. And it's essentially, it's a race against time to get to the summit and back down again before you do. Why do we do this? Because people, I don't know, it's the same reason we go to space. Like, why the fuck not? (laughs) 
say going to space. space. Another is thing safer. I'm scared of. Uh, so an extended stay in the death zone means the deterioration of bodily functions, loss of consciousness, and ultimately death. Um, so either your body shuts down or you just you will make a stupid mistake because humans can't think straight when there's not enough oxygen going to their brains. Yeah. And with the weather and the temperature and like you're climbing a mountain uh, requires some pretty quick decision making. So like the there it is the thing where people will just not think correctly. They'll make really dumb decisions or they won't react quick enough. And oh, yeah, they're goners at that point. Uh, you can summit without supplemental oxygen. It's been done, obviously, um, but it's very risky and one of those things only really experienced climbers can pull off. Uh, the death rate for those climbing without oxygen is about twice that of those who do. And, like, why try? Why Why bother? <laughs> this is, I mean, that's my philosophy, but I'm not a white guy with $50,000 to burn. If you were, we wouldn't be doing this podcast. <laughs> God, I'd hope not. <laughs> Actually, we probably would if I was a white guy. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah, you definitely would have a podcast. <laughs> I would have a podcast. Are you kidding? Anyway. Uh, so, yeah. So you got about two to three days. Literally, go big or go home. Get to the summit or don't. <laughs> um, a lot of times, your success depends on whether or not the weather decides to cooperate for those three days. Uh, this is part of the recent problems with overcrowding that you mentioned. Like, And we'll talk more about it later. But like, if you get a few days of good weather, everyone is going to push towards the summit at once. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, reaching the summit. From Camp 4, climbers will start their summit push about midnight. So, ideally, it should take them about 10 to 12 hours if they're at a good pace. Uh, so, first, they hike up to what's called the balcony, which is a platform where they can rest. Sounds nice. Sure. Sure. Uh, and then they push on, uh, sometimes through waist-deep snow, to the south south summit, an icy dome that's about 400 feet from the true summit. Uh, from there, you head to the southeast ridge, one of the most exposed sections of the climb. It's known as the knife edge or the cornice traverse. And this is what I was talking about, the video that I had to watch. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make you watch it eh. uh, and react to it. I should have had this pulled up, but I didn't. Oh, you're going to make me go. watch it right now? Yeah. <sighs> so while you're watching this. All right. Let's see. So as you would expect from the knife edge, just kind of a very narrow spit of rock. It's straight down 8,000 feet to the west and 10,000 down on your right. I don't like this. Nah. Again, why do we as humans do this shit? Humans are just weird. After you do that horrifying thing, uh, you're onto the Hillary step. And this is named, of course, for Edmund Hillary, who, along with Tenzing Norgay, was the first to ever ascend it. Uh, This used to be a near vertical climb. It's kind of four large boulders stacked on top of each other. Um, But the step partially collapsed in the Nepal earthquake of 2015. So now the largest and highest rock is gone. It's still not a fun obstacle. Um, And here again, the climbers are using fixed ropes previously set up by the Sherpas. Um, And it's become kind of a bottleneck in recent years because there's one set of ropes and you kind of have to wait your turn. Yeah. So um, it'll be, yeah, we'll talk more. So once you're up the step, from there, it's only 200 feet to the summit and a relatively easy climb up a moderate slope. Relatively. You're wearing like a big snowsuit. You've been climbing for 12 hours and you're huffing oxygen from cans. <laughs> I'd be tired. I don't think it's just like you get up the step and you're like, take a couple steps and you're there. It's, I think it's still kind of a, doesn't sound fun. Yeah. But. I mean, none of this sounds fun. <laughs> but then you're at the top. You are 29,000 feet in the air. Uh, you literally cannot get any higher. Without being in a plane, I guess. I well, <laughs> see, you can you can uh, carry a joint to the top of Everest, <laughs> spark it up, 
And then then you were the God, highest person on earth. I wonder if that's been done. That sounds like a poor decision, just like considering like how out of it you probably are already from the oxygen deprivation. I mean, you could do <sighs> anyway. cocaine up there. I mean, there you go. Because cocaine always leads to smart decisions. I mean, you're already climbing a tall mountain that you were not supposed to be on. So, <laughs> uh, so at the top, you'll find prayer flags, scientific equipment, definitely some garbage. Bodies. Uh, not at the summit. We'll talk about that. Uh, also, just a whole bunch of your fellow climbers taking some well-earned selfies. It is about the size of a dining room table. <laughs> Whose dining room table, though? I wondered this myself. I've also heard about, like, the size of two ping pong tables. Uh, I, so I think a fairly sizable table. Yeah. But still. Someone has a really big dining room table. Still, like, when I stand, like, on top of my kitchen island to change a light bulb, like, that's not enough space for me. <laughs> I don't know how I would do if I was on my kitchen island. My kitchen island is not as big as two ping pong tables. I mean, you could fit like maybe... But I wouldn't want to be on there with 20 other people. You'd probably fit two people on top of my kitchen table. Yeah. Ugh. No thanks. <laughs> uh, climbers will typically only spend about a half an hour at the summit because even if traffic goes fine, it's already noon and the longer you wait to descend, the worse time you're going to have. And the commute your home is always worse than the commute to work. Literally, yeah. Yeah. Uh, your oxygen, not unlimited. Uh, afternoon weather can be unpredictable, and you do not want to be climbing down in the dark. No, I can't imagine it's a very well-lit mountain. No? <laughs> uh, so just below the summit, uh, there's an area called the Rainbow Valley. Uh, it's named for bodies of dead climbers. Uh, so just below the summit, there's an area. Uh, it's called the Rainbow Valley. Ooh. Uh, it's named for the bodies of dead climbers. Ooh. Still in their brightly colored winter gear. It's grim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so nearly 300 people have died on Everest. Uh, and Nepal's government estimates that most of them, uh, at least 200, still remain on the mountain. Uh, most of them are appropriately in the death zone. Um, and at that altitude between the weather and the lack of oxygen, it's nearly impossible to retrieve a body. Yeah, I mean, I hate to say this because it's a human being, but they just weigh you down and then you have two dead bodies. Yeah, essentially. Um, and yeah, and because of this, like that standard operating procedure above 26,000 feet is if you die in the mountain, your body is going to stay there. If you die in the mountain, you die in real life. <laughs> also true. <laughs> uh, so we're going to cover some famous deaths. Just a couple. This is, oh uh, God, I had to do this at like 11 o'clock last night. It was dark I mean, and I didn't, you didn't sleep. you have to. Well, no, I had poor time management skills and was cramming before the big test. Anyway, there's a reason I didn't sleep great last night. Um, starting with um, Francis Arsentiev. Sure. Yes. Uh, so the first is uh, Francis Arsentiev. Uh, so Fran, along with her husband, Sergei, climbed Everest in 1998. And Fran's goal was to become the first American woman to summit without the use of supplemental oxygen. Again, not something you need to do, Fran. Well, she did it. <laughs> uh, despite two aborted attempts, Fran and Sergei reached the summit late on May 22nd. Uh, but they weren't able to descend and had to spend another night in the death zone. So that was their mistake, uh, I assume. Yeah. Uh, so at some point, um, they became separated, and Sergei made his way back down to Camp 4, only to discover that his wife hadn't done the same. Uh, so he grabbed oxygen and medicine, and he went back up the mountain to rescue her. 
Uh, then on May 23rd, an Uzbek team found Fran half alive and unable to move on her own. Uh, they carried her down as far as they could, but their own oxygen ran out. They had to abandon her so they could climb down. And that's kind of the thing is sometimes, like, there's some controversy about it, which we'll get into. But, like, at some point, it's kind of every man for himself. Yeah. Essentially. Uh, uh, so along the way, they actually passed Sergei on his way up to rescue his wife. And this is the last confirmed sighting of Sergei. He was never seen alive again. His fate remains unknown. Damn That's it, Sergei. just a real sad footnote in what's going to be a real bummer of I don't know the next twenty minutes. I don't know. Uh, so on May twenty fourth, she so she's been up here for like two days, mm-hmm, three days. Mm-hmm. Uh, climbers Ian Woodall and Kathy O'Dowd fr- found Fran frostbitten, severely oxygen deprived, and still attached to her climbing line. Um, they abandoned their summon attempt to try and save her, but they were unable to really do much. Uh, ultimately, they had, they had to leave Fran where she was. Uh, so for nine years, climbers had to navigate around her body, still frozen to the side of the mountain mm-hmm. as they climbed to the summit. Mm-hmm. Um, Woodall did return in 2007. I don't think it was a summit. I think he specifically went there to retrieve Fran, mm-hmm. and they dropped her body down to a lower face. So this is what they'll do a lot of times. Like, they can't get the body down from the mountain, but if they can, they'll try and kind of... It sounds really terrible, but they'll drop them down the side or in a crevasse, because then at least they're not, like, sitting out for everybody. Yeah, essentially. It that makes just sense. Just moves them off the path. Yeah. Which, I get it. That seems way more respectful than just yeah letting human icicles hang out on the side of the mountain. But uh, So one of the most famous bodies on Everest was Green Boots. Oh. Um, yeah. <laughs> His identity is something of a mystery. It's widely believed that he was an Indian climber named, uh, it's Sewang Paljor, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, he summited in 1996. Um, he was also the, um, he was part of like a four-man team. The one remaining survivor from that expedition believes that Sewang fell, he fell victim to something climbers call summit fever. Essentially, they are so blinded by their need to get to the summit that they abandon all thoughts of safety, sometimes basic human decency. The Lord of the Flies effect. Yeah, like, all that matters is I achieve my goals and fuck anyone who's in my way and yeah, fuck yeah. surviving. It's, yeah, not, not, not great. Um, he was able to reach the top, uh, but they were caught in a blizzard on the way back down. Um, it's likely that he attempted to take shelter in this cave on the North Coal, um, mm-hmm. and that's where he died. Uh, so in the years after his death, um, Paljor became something of a grim landmark for climbers ascending on the north face of Everest. Um, because his identity was uncertain, he became known for the neon green boots that he wore. Uh, That's a real fucking bummer. It is. <laughs> it's about to get worse. Uh, the cave, which is just off the trail, it's a common place for climbers to stop and rest. So you definitely notice the body. Yeah. One of them, a British man named David Sharp, uh, did exactly that in 2006. Uh, Sharp, too, would eventually die on the mountain, and his death ignited a controversy that challenged what was, up until then, this conventional wisdom that if you got into trouble on Everest, you're on your own. Uh, so witnesses had reported, and there was actually even, like, a documentary crew up there on the time that, like, passed David on the mountain. Um, and they reported that nearly 40 climbers passed Sharp on their way to and from the summit, and that while he was clearly in, distru- in distress, no one had stopped to aid him. Uh, it is possible that due to where he was sheltered that many of him many of them actually mistook him for green boots. So mm. that's been bandied about as a reason. Um, but after news of his this broke, um, Edmund Hillary himself 
publicly criticized the climbers um, and attributed again to this idea of summit fever. Uh, he was quoted in the New Zealand Herald as saying, if you have someone who is in great need and you are still strong and energetic, then you have a duty really to give all you can to get the men down and getting to the summit becomes very secondary. Well, Which I like Sir Edmund Hillary. He sounds like yeah. a chill dude. Ned <laughs> <laughs> so when, uh, some of the climbers who had passed Sharp argued, uh, not without merit, honestly, that he was completely frostbitten, incoherent, and too far gone in that attempting a rescue would have only cost more lives. Um, still, that very same climbing season, an Australian climber named Lincoln Hall was found alive after being left for dead the day before at 28,200 feet. I bet when he saw his friends again after getting down, he had some fucking words for them. <laughs> There's actually a quote from him in the Wikipedia article that's something like, he's just kind of chilling out on the side of the mountain sitting down. And I have this like very clear image in my head of this happening. Like another group of climbers found him and he's like, I bet you're surprised to see me. <laughs> Record scratch. So I bet you're wondering how I got here. I Let me tell you, Steve is an asshole. <laughs> other high altitude rescues have taken place in the years since. So it that, that idea that it's too risky is kind of who knows it's going away yeah uh so david sharp was removed from the cave in 2007 uh and green boots was removed in 2014 like fran likely dropped to a lower elevation so instead of like fully taken off the mountain yeah, yeah. okay so the next one is hanelore schmatz she was a german climber who summited everest in 1979 uh she's got the dubious distinction of being the first woman to die on everest cool mm -hmm. uh it just, it keeps getting bad. Uh, on their way down the mountain, Hanalore and her teammate, exhausted from their climb, uh, they set up a temporary camp in the death zone without any cover. Uh, this was against the advice of their Sherpa guides, who probably are like, the one what the fuck you are you doing? To. I mean, I get it. Like, I can't even imagine how tired you must be. But like, I feel like I would have, this is me talking about, well, if I was climbing Everest, this is what I would do. But like... God, I feel like you would just want to get down to safety so badly that the adrenaline would kind of keep you pushing. But I guess yeah. you're probably out of adrenaline at this point. So we won't question them. We'll question them a little bit. Anyway, uh, the night they were on the they were in the death zone, a snowstorm hit. Um, Hanalore tried to make it back down the mountain, but she succumbed to exhaust exhaustion only 330 feet from Camp 4. Um, she then became known as the German woman. Oh. And her body remained on Everest until winds later swept her down the Kangsheng face. Um, there was an attempt in, uh, to retrieve her body in 1984 uh, that resulted in the falling deaths of two men. So it legit is dangerous to try and get people off the mountain. Uh, that being said, it isn't unheard of to retrieve bodies from the death zone. This is my last recommendation of the night. <laughs> <laughs> the New York Times did a feature in December 2017 called Deliverance from 27,000 Feet please Google it and read it. It's a beautiful piece. It's one of those cool articles where you scroll down and like the graphics move and the photos are gorgeous. It's a crazy story. It's about like two Indian climbers who died um, after a summit attempt and mm -hmm. their families, like just the quest of their families to get their bodies back down from Everest and the people they sent up to get them. And it's gorgeous. Not to sound insensitive, but couldn't you just... Start rolling them down and let them <laughs> go the rest of the way, you know, like a snowball. I don't think that works that way. <laughs> I mean, checking. it's not a straight face. Just checking. Uh, it worked in Frozen. 
I mean, they weren't getting dead bodies off the side of the mountain, but <laughs> worked with Olaf. So there's also been a number of larger disasters on Everest. Um, the most famous of these was in 1996, when eight climbers died after being caught in a blizzard high up on the mountain. Uh, so this is the story that John Krakauer talks about in his book Into Thin Air, um, which I read in like 12 hours because it was so good. <laughs> and oh, wow. What made me obsessed with Everest. So shout out to him, I guess. Also a disclaimer, his like whole take on this con- on this disaster is a little disputed, just like everything in the world is d- disputed. So of like course. it's definitely his viewpoint and I'm probably talking from. There's probably details that I'm missing. I did most of this from memory. <laughs> I'm going to be completely honest here. Anyway, uh, so the 1996 disaster raised questions about the growing commercialization of Everest. Still controversy today. Um, as Gentrifying Everest? Essentially, yes. Uh, so as bottlenecks at the balcony in the Hillary step caused men- delays and many of the guides were leading unexperienced and arguably unqualified climbers up the mountain well after the normal turnaround time of 2 o'clock. So like we've said, like the descent is just as risky as the climb. And if you get caught up on the mountain You're after fucked. a certain time, it's even worse. Yeah. Um, so really, like it's a lot of this summit fever again, compounded by the fact that a lot of these climbers had paid a lot to be in the mountain and the pressure to actually summit was pretty intense. At least this is a lot of what like Krakauer hypothesized. Um, mm-hmm. So like in particular, one of the climbers, Doug Hansen, he was a postal worker. Uh, you say he- duck or Doug? Sorry, Doug. Just checking. It's a nickname. <laughs> uh, Doug was a postal worker. He was attempting to summit Everest for the second time. So he had like already paid a guy to go up in summit Everest and couldn't, for whatever reason, failed. Um, so this was his second attempt at the mountain. Uh, he was sighted by Sherpas just above the Hillary Step at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I uh, remember like there, the guideline is if you're not to the summit at 2, you turn around to get the hell back down because it's yeah. not going to happen. Uh, yeah. So this was around three o'clock. Um, they ordered him to descend, but he repeatedly pointed toward the summit and shook his head. Uh, when his guide, Rob Hall, arrived on the scene, uh, the Sherpas did offer to take Hansen to the summit, but Hall sent them back down to assist other clients. There were, like I said, like eight people died this night. There were plenty of other people in trouble at this point. Um, Hall and Hansen continued toward the summit and likely didn't reach it until well after four o'clock. Um, both would later perish in the blizzard. Hansen's body has never been found. Like, I think the last thing is Hall radioed down and said Hansen is gone. And that's the only thing we know about him, which is another thing that like terrifies me. Like the fact that you could die. And if no one's around to witness it, we just we don't, don't know. know. Like, I mean, obviously like- you died on Everest somehow. You fell or you froze to death or you got off the route. I mean, but-, but it's it's the same as someone getting kidnapped by Bigfoot in a national park. Like- <laughs> Essentially, it's the same kidnapped by the Yeti. <laughs> It's a crime syndicate. <laughs> Missing, Missing 26,000. <laughs> I'm glad we had the same joke at the same time. <laughs> anyway, uh, at the time, this was the highest death toll in a single event in Everest history. And for the season as well, like 12 people would die in Everest that year. Uh, that number wouldn't be surpassed until 2014. Uh, so that season... An avalanche on the mountain killed 16 Sherpas who were roping the Kumba Icefall. Remember what I told you about the Icefall? Yeah. They were struck by a column of ice the size of a 10-story apartment building. Well, I don't like that. No, I don't either, which is why I have to tell you about it. It's very rude of Uh, you. So this underscores not only how deadly the Icefall can be, but also just generally the disproportionate dangers faced by Sherpas. Like, this was in April... No one was climbing the mountain yet. They were just getting it ready for the season. 
Yeah, uh, what's that saying? The Sherpas ran or walked so you could run or something? Yeah, that sounds appropriate. <laughs> um, so in April 2015, uh, the next year, a 7.8 magnitude earthquake struck Nepal. Uh, and this triggered oh, another right. avalanche that hit Everest Base Camp. So 18 people were killed just at Base Camp. I wouldn't call that Everest's fault. I'd probably call that the uh, earthquake's <laughs> yeah, fault. Yeah, no, that was the earthquake's fault. But uh, just the idea, like, Everest Base Camp, like, feels very safe. But, like, you can still get killed at Everest Base Camp. Well, yeah, because yeah. you're still doing a very dumb yeah. thing. Uh, 18 people were killed and the quake left. Hundreds of climbers trapped above the Kumba Icefall at, like, Camps 1 and 2. And they had to be evacuated by helicopter. Um, I had this somewhere. Maybe I missed it. You can. There you can get helicopters up the mountain, but only to like 21,000 feet. And above 21,000 feet, there's literally not enough oxygen in the air to keep them flying. Which is why, like, you can't helicopter to the top of Mount Everest, or you can't rescue someone from the death zone with a helicopter. Oh, yeah. okay. Uh, so the mountain was closed for the season. It reopened in August 2015, but only one climber was issued a permit for the fall. So essentially no one summited that season. Uh, it's been open since then, uh, but in 2019, the most recent season, a record 891 climbers reached the summit. Uh, this was also one of the deadliest seasons in recent memory with 12 people dead. Uh, this has renewed the debate over the commercial guides that lead people up Everest. Um, the veteran climbers place a lot of the blame on just the sheer numbers of people. Um, mm-hmm. There's a shot, which is now kind of infamous, and I will also post this to the Instagram, I promise. People literally, like, waiting in line just to go take a selfie at the summit. Uh, So, like, when the weather window opens, everyone rushes to the summit, and that can mean waiting for hours to use the ropes on the Hillary Steps or crossing the Cornish Traverse, which, I mean, you saw the video. You kind of have to go in single file. Is it? Well, I guess not safer since, like, a record number of people died, but that might be, like, proportionate to the number of people who were there. Is it safer if there are more people climbing? (sighs) I feel like it's a mixed bag and I feel like honestly it's probably more dangerous and that's the thing is like people get held up because there's just so many people on the mountain you can't get up and down the mountain fast enough to replenish your oxygen okay so so you like run out essentially so there's there's got to be like a a middle ground um making it worse not the middle ground um Many of the climbers are inexperienced. Oh, uh, God damn it, people. Yeah. Um, according to some of the Sherpas, like, some people didn't even know how to put on crampons, which are basically, like, they're spikes that clip to your boots to uh. give you traction. Uh, it seems like a very basic piece of climbing gear. And if you don't know how to do that, should you be on Everest? It's a fair question. Yeah. Uh, the thing is, like, up until now, Nepal has had virtually no rules about who can get a permit. It's essentially, if you can pay, you can... If you can pay and you have a guide, go ahead. I mean, that that's true for yeah. all of life. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> uh, that is, it does sound like that's beginning to change. Um, in August, a panel advising the Nepal's government recommended that climbers who wish to summit Everest should be required to prove that they are experienced uh, mountaineers, um, likely by, like, they have to go summit one of Nepal's other peaks of 21,000 feet first. Mm-hmm. So you go to a practice mountain and then you can come to Everest. Which I think is fair. Yeah, you um, should work your way up to it. You don't start in the deep yeah. end. Uh, they also recommended climbers submit a certificate of physical fitness and employ experienced guides. Because kind of now, just there's a lot of just really cheap guide companies. that Discount guides? Maybe, yeah, essentially that. Maybe not the people you want to be hiring, but uh, the government does plan to put these changes in place before um, the spring 2020 climbing season. 
Oh, good. Uh, so if you ever wanted to climb Mount Everest, quick, go now. <laughs> I'm, I'm good. I'm Just good. kidding. Don't. <laughs> Especially not when this episode comes out because it'll be like December. No. You're too late. I'm sorry. Uh, if you do, at least pick up your trash. I didn't even get into it, but there's a lot of garbage on Mount Everest. So much trash. It's just kind of a thing. Uh, that's all I got. I talked for a long time. I'm so tired. <laughs> I'm glad I got to talk to everybody about like the horrifying nightmares I have about Mount Everest for no, literally no reason. Yeah, thank you for sharing them with us. Yeah. If you've climbed Everest and would like to share, <laughs> tweet at us at Afternoonified. We're also on Instagram at Afternoonified. Facebook at facebook.com slash getafternoonified, getafternoonified.com, afternoonifiedpod at gmail.com if you'd like to long form it. Uh, please remember to rate, subscribe, review, all of that fun stuff. Um, do we have any points of business? I hope not because I didn't remember them. We are so far in the future right now. Yeah, this is going to be released in like November. Um, so happy Thanksgiving, I guess. If you're uh, in the U.S., if you're in Canada, you can go fuck yourself. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> um, I guess at this point, no, we won't have released the special episode with resident Canadian Sadie. No, that's a future episode that you're going to be recording while I'm on vacation. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have a resident Canadian Sadie on to uh, fill in for Sarah. Because that's what we do when one of the hosts can't make it, is we just find someone with the same name. Yep. Well, not the same name. She spells it the wrong way, but... There's a whole thing. Um, yeah, I I hope you guys are enjoying the other shows on the network. And if you're not, then we'll... make your own. Come join us. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I'm gonna I'm gonna go now. That yeah, was me very too. good. Thank Goodbye, you. Bye everybody. We love you. Bye. Hello, my name is Kaya. And I'm Marissa. And this is Well, Well, Why Not? Not. Join us every Monday as we discuss movies, science, technology, history. Sometimes I think about all the different things we talk about. And they're not even categories. Because you know what? We're geeky. We're nerdy. So like every millennial, we started a podcast. Because that's what we need. More podcasts. Absolutely. Join us every Monday and listen to Well, Why Not? A podcast because. Just because. Just, just really because we had this microphone. Well, why not? <laughs> For more podcasts like the one you just listened to, go to SoBelowMedia.com. This, this is as above, so below.